Praise the Lord. We got something to look forward to on the other side. Thank you all so much. What a blessing. Well, how many of you brought your Bible? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building this morning? And I want to ask you to join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11 this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Now, I have an old Schofield Bible. And if you have one, I'm on page number 1011 if you have an old Schofield Bible. And if you don't, if you'll just go to the New Testament, the very first book is uh, Matthew, and then find chapter 11. I want to read a couple of verses here. Then I'm going to ask you to leave your Bibles open this morning, and I want to share something with you from the Word of God. Matthew chapter number 11. I do want to encourage you to be back tonight at 530. And, of course, right after service, we'll kind of come in. The youth choir will sing. I'll have a short message. And I know probably some of you are saying, yeah, right. But I'm going to. It's going to, be a, it's going to be a fast message tonight. And then we're going to go over to the gym for a job fair, ministry fair, and give you an opportunity to get signed up for something brand new that you want to do for the Lord this year. And we'll do that right after church tonight. So plan on sticking around. We'll be done with the whole thing probably around 7 o'clock or so. And so I want to encourage you to be here for that this evening, all right? Uh, 5.30, of course, 5.05 for prayer room. Now, Matthew chapter 11, if you're there, would you say amen? amen? All right, look this way, if you will. I don't know if you have watched the State of the Union address this past Tuesday night, but if you did, probably one of the things that you took away from that, that address is the great divide that now exists in our nation. Our nation is no, no longer the one nation under God, indivisible. Because the truth of the matter is we're very divisible today, are we not? There is a great divide going on in our nation. There's a number of reasons why that's true. And, uh, but probably one of the primary reasons that our nation is so divided is because of what they call the privileged versus the underprivileged of our nation. You know, they, 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 they want to draw a contrast between those who have and those who have not. You see, one side, they say this, those who have more, have worked for it, leave them alone. But then there's the other side that says this, those who have more ought to bear more of a burden and be forced to share with those who have less. Now, I want to tell you this morning, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does God place a penalty upon the rich, and a premium upon the poor. And nowhere in the Bible does God place a premium upon the rich and a penalty upon the poor. What the Bible does say about the rich and the poor, well, it's found right there on the screen this morning. The Bible said in Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of of them all. Now, I want to tell you something this morning. Please hear me and hear me well. The rich and the poor may never meet together at the bank, but I will tell you this. The rich and the poor are on level ground when it comes to the love of God. They're on level ground when it comes to death, and they're on, the le on level ground when it comes to the subject of salvation, the privileged and the underprivileged. But the purpose of my message this morning is not political. No, sir. It's spiritual. And it is eternal. You know why? Because truth of the matter, I'm not a politician. I am a preacher. And this is not, you're not sitting in a political rally. You're sitting in a worship service this morning. You're sitting in a church. So this morning, I want to read to you from the Bible 
what the Word of God has to say about some people who were very privileged and some other people who were not so privileged. All right? And then what I want to do is I want to ask you to leave your Bibles open and let me try to piece all this together. So join me now in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, and look at verse 23. Matthew 11, verse 23. Let's read about the privileged, first of all, verse 23, and thou Capernaum. So now Capernaum is the privileged. And thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, the underprivileged, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now, look at me. Let's, let's, just, let's just make no bones about it this morning. I, our church is a church that believes, based upon the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Can I have an amen? Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There's not a Baptist way. There's not a Buddhist way. There's not a Mormon way. There's not a Methodist way. There's not a Presbyterian way. There's not a Pentecostal way. According to the Bible, there's only one way that people can get to heaven, and that is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't apologize for that. I mean, buddy, we make no bones about that. We're not trying to cover that up. We're not trying to slip through this world incognito. We're very, very matter of fact. When you walk in these doors, you're going to hear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. You've heard me say this before, but I want to say it again. Jesus Christ is not just a way to heaven. He, he's not just one of many ways to heaven. He, he's not just a, a good way to heaven. Jesus is not just the best way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to heaven. In his own words, Jesus said this, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, I will tell you something, friend. That's pretty cut and dry there. Jesus said if you want to get to the Father, the only way to get to the Father is by and through me. Now, with that being said, and us believing that, has anybody ever asked you this question before? But what about those who have never heard of Jesus? What about those who have ever, never heard of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Will they still die and go to hell? What about this question? Will all people suffer alike in hell? Or what about this question? If not, who's going to suffer the most in hell? Well, I've got to tell you this morning, these two verses that I've read this morning kind of straightens all that out for us this morning. These two verses that I've read, believe this or not, will uncover a lot of truth for us this morning when it comes to the subject of who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, Who's going to suffer in hell, and what is hell really like? All of that is covered for us here in these verses this morning. The privileged versus the underprivileged. What our country is so divided about this morning is cleared up for us right here in the Word of God. So would you join me now in this text? I have three little simple things. It's 1035. I have three little simple things I'd like to say about all of that. Will people who have never heard the name of Jesus, if they die, will they go to hell? Who's going to suffer the most in hell? Will some people suffer more in hell than other people will in hell? 
Tell us, preacher. Answer those questions for us. Well, I, I can't claim that I've got the answers, but I promise you this, the Word of God has the answers for it this morning. So I'd really like to ask you and implore you to sit up this morning for just a moment. Cut your cell phones off. Cut your cell phones off. Cut your cell phones off for just a minute. Where is mine? I'm going to lay it right here. And if it answers, if it rings, y'all get it, if you will. But I want to talk to you about what the Bible said about this subject this morning, all right? Please listen. Number one, look in our text this morning. Let me talk, number one, about the two towns. The two towns of our text. Now, we read in verse 23 about a town by the name of Capernaum. But then we read a little bit later in verse 23 about a town by the name of Sodom. Now, one of these towns we have heard a whole lot about. If you've been around church, if you've been in, uh, read your Bible much, and, and, or maybe you watch church on TV or whatever, you've heard a lot about one of these towns. The other, maybe not so much. We've heard a lot about the town of Sodom. But a lot of us have not heard much about the town of Capernaum. So let's talk firstly, verse 23, about Capernaum. The Bible said, And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven. Let me tell you a little bit about the town of Capernaum for just a minute. The town of Capernaum was a fishing village, and it was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And back during the days of Jesus, so as I read this week, it had a population of around 1,500 people. I venture to say there's probably almost as many people sitting in this auditorium this morning as there were uh, that lived in the town of Capernaum in the day uh, of the Lord Jesus. The town of Capernaum was near another little town called the town of Bethsaida. Now, that doesn't mean much to you, but let me tell you this. Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John... They lived in a place by the name of Bethsaida, which was right near the town of Capernaum. Most people believe that Simon Peter, who I guess we could say really became the spokesman for the group of the disciples, he was always speaking up, you know, for the disciples. Most people believe that Peter actually left Bethsaida and had made his home in the town of Capernaum. By the way, that would make sense. Peter was a fisherman. Andrew was a fisherman. James and John were fishermen. It would kind of make sense that they'd want to live close to where they worked at. So I can see Peter leaving Bethsaida and moving to the town of Capernaum since it was located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where he made his living. In fact, let me tell you this. Archaeologists have been digging, uh, have been digging around these towns and they have actually, there in, a, in the ancient location of the town of Capernaum, they have actually found a site that they have thought to be the home of Simon Peter. Years later, they built a church on top of that site in, in the town of Capernaum. And so it's, it's kind of, in Bible times, it was kind of a pretty famous place. Peter was there. James and John lived near there. Andrew was near there. But here's the thing about the city of Capernaum, and that's this. The city of Capernaum was actually the town that Jesus chose kind of to be his, his hometown. Now, we know that while Jesus was here on this earth, Jesus never owned a home. Jesus didn't have a home that he could go to like you and I have a home that we'll go to after church this morning. He didn't have a home. In fact, the Bible said in the book of Matthew chapter 8, and verse number 20, Jesus said this one time about himself, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man, speaking of himself... 
hath, hath, hath not a place to lay down his head. We know that Jesus never really had a home, but during his earthly ministry. Now we know, according to the Bible, for 30 years, Jesus kind of remained pretty much in obscurity. We know that when he was born, you know, there's a big deal about his birth. The wise men came. Herod was all mad. Babies were killed. Uh, you know, the disciples came. We, we get that. But from the time that Jesus was two years old, up until the time he was 30 years old, he lived basically in obscurity. Except for one occasion in Luke chapter 2 when he was the age of 12 and went up to the city of Jerusalem. But on the age of 30, Jesus burst out on the spotlight, in the spotlight of the public eye, and Jesus made his headquarters in the city of Capernaum. In fact, can I show you what Jesus said about his own city, the city of Capernaum? In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 1, the Bible said, And Jesus entered a ship and passed over and came into his own city. So Jesus said, hey, if you want to know where I'm from on the earth, of course we know he was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth as a boy, but Jesus said, my hometown now is the city of Capernaum. So there you have a town that is privileged to have Jesus living there. But then we read about another town in verse 23, a town by the name of Sodom. Now, whereas Capernaum was a Galilean town, Sodom was pretty much a Gentile town. Now, we know a lot about Sodom from the record of the Bible because Sodom is sometimes mentioned in the Bible with another city by the name of Gomorrah. Those two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, two towns like Winston and Salem. Now, we just call them Winston-Salem, but there used to be a divide, Winston and Salem, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was located, or Sodom was located on the Jordan River in the southern part of the land of Canaan. It was a very fertile place. It was a great place to raise, raise cattle and, and livestock. In fact, you may remember an Old Testament man by the name of Lot looked upon Sodom, and then here's what he had to say about it. He said this, Luke 13, 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered. Everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like unto the land of Egypt, thou comest. You know, what Sodom, you know what Lot said about the city of Sodom and the plains that surrounded it? He said it kind of reminded him of the garden of the Lord. Now, the garden of the Lord is a reference to the garden of Eden. I don't know if Lot ever saw it, but he probably heard about it. He said, man, looking at this place kind of reminds me of what the garden of Eden must to have looked like. But we know that Sodom was a very wicked place. It may have been a good place to raise cattle, but it wasn't a good place to raise children. I mean, it was a wicked, it was a very ungodly place. In fact, can I tell you this? Sodom is basically known for one thing, and that's this. God destroyed it. God rained judgment down upon the city, the town of Sodom. Now, if you don't believe that, Here's what the Bible said about that, Genesis 19, 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So we've got one town, the town of Capernaum. Jesus lived there, privileged. We got another town, the town of Sodom, and God literally destroyed the place. So now we've got the two towns, the two towns. Maybe you all are with me, two towns. Next, we move from the two towns to what I want to call number two, the troubling truth. 
the troubling too. Now, now having just told you what I've just told you about Capernaum being the hometown of Jesus and Sodom being the, <laughs> can I say it like this, the hometown of the devil that God literally destroyed, from, wiped from off the face of the earth. I mean, these two towns, Sodom and Capernaum, are polar opposites. One, one town represents light, the other town represents darkness. Can I ask you something? If you had to pick a town to raise your family in, which town would you pick? Well, I mean, I wouldn't even have to think hard about it. Give me Capernaum any day over the city of Sodom. Let me ask you this. If you had to pick a town that in the day of judgment is going to suffer more than the other town, which town would you pick? I'd pick the town of Sodom. Yet in an amazing twist of truth, Jesus tells us in our text that in the day of judgment, it's going to be better for Sodom than it will Capernaum. Now wait a minute. Look at verse 24. Jesus said, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable. It'll be better off. It'll be, it'll be easier for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for the city of Capernaum. Now, we've got to stop the message right here and take a 30-second time out. We've got to ask the question, why? Why is it going to be better for Sodom, that wicked, ungodly place, than it is for the city of Capernaum where Jesus lived? Why is it going to be better for them in the day of judgment than it is for the city of Sodom? Well, let me tell you why. Because in verse 23 we read that Jesus did some of his most mighty works in the city of Capernaum. The Bible said in verse 23, uh, And thou Capernaum, and notice this, which are exalted unto heaven. Capernaum was a, an exalted city. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus lived there. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus did some of his most mighty works in the city of Capernaum. Why? I'll tell you why. Jesus chose the city of Capernaum to be his hometown headquarters for his earthly ministry. In fact, if you'll do this, and you don't, we won't do it this morning, but if you were to go back to Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, you'll find out in those two chapters there are ten miracles done in, them ten, in those two chapters, and five of those ten miracles in those two chapters are done in the city of Capernaum. I mean, what I'm trying to say is this. The people who lived in the city of Capernaum had seen things and heard things and experienced things that the people who lived in Sodom never did. The people who lived in the city of Capernaum, they saw Jesus on almost a daily basis. They heard his words. He preached among them. He ministered among them. He healed among them. He lived and he moved among them. They could touch him. They could see him. They could hear him. And yet, they rejected him. And yet, they refused to accept him. And yet, they would not believe him. Can I say this? Sodom never had that chance. I mean, let's just face it. Jesus didn't live in Sodom. I believe Jesus was alive when Sodom was on the earth before God destroyed it. But Jesus was in heaven. He was not on the earth. Jesus was alive, but Jesus didn't walk on the earth in the days of Sodom as such. Jesus didn't do miracles in Sodom as far as we're told in God's Word. 
The people in the land of Sodom never had the opportunity to see, to hear, or experience what the people of Capernaum did. And so Jesus said, hey, this, let me tell you something. In the day of judgment, it's going to be better for the land of Sodom than it will for the town of Capernaum. Now, what's the troubling truth about all that? Well, the troubling truth about all that is this. Look up on the screens. The greater the opportunity, the greater the responsibility. The greater the opportunity you have, the greater opportunity a place has to experience Jesus, to hear about Jesus, to know about Jesus, the greater opportunity they have to understand all that, the greater responsibility is going to be in the day of judgment. That's right. That's why Jesus said, Jesus said in verse number 24, I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be better for Sodom, a place that was so bad that I wiped off the face of the earth. It's going to be better for them in the day of judgment than it will be for the very hometown where Jesus lived. The reason being, Capernaum had wonderful opportunity to believe on Jesus and to receive Jesus. Sodom never had that opportunity. And Jesus said, I just want to tell you, I'm going to hold those people of Capernaum more accountable and responsible because they had more light than the city of Sodom had. Does that make sense? Hey, can I stop and just say this this morning? Our nation has had privileges that other nations in this world have never had. Our nation for, the, for 235, 30, 40 years, whatever, in our existence, we've had the opportunity to possess the gospel in the United States of America. We've had the opportunity in the United States of America to understand who Jesus is. We've had the opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus. Did you, can I tell you this this morning? This amazes me. In the United States of America this morning, there are over 300,000 churches. Now, I know I get it. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but they don't all preach Jesus. I get that. I understand that. But just stop and think about that. 300,000 churches in America. There are 50 states. If you do the math, 50 times 6,000 equals 300,000. So every state has an average of, of, of 6,000 churches. There are more than that probably in Winston-Salem. But every state in America has on average at least 6,000 churches in that state or in, the, in that area. And that's not counting, listen, the 1,000 Christian radio stations we have. That's not counting the available Internet and television that we have here in America. I'm just saying, if there's ever been a nation that's been privileged to hear the gospel, the United States has been privileged to hear the gospel. And on the Day of Judgment... It'll be worse for America than it will for Ethiopia. You know why? We've had, we've had more opportunity. We've had greater light shed upon us here in America. We understand God. We understand what we used to. We understand that there's one God. That one God has a son by the name of Jesus. That one son died on the cross of Calvary to, to pay the penalty for our sins. And by accepting him, we can be saved and become a part of God's family. We've heard that in America to the point that we're almost we're bored by it anymore in America. But we've had that opportunity maybe that some third world country has never had in the day of judgment, listen, in the day of judgment, it'll be worse on America than it will be on that third world country. We had more opportunity. We had more light than they had.
Now listen to me. So we've talked about the two towns. We've talked about the troubling truth. But number three, I want to talk about this this morning. I want to talk about the terrible tragedy. Because what is true of places is also true of people. Let me say it to you like this. The more opportunity you've had to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the more knowledge that you've had of who Jesus really is, the more light that the Holy Spirit has shined upon your heart, and the more you've rejected that, the greater your judgment's going to be in the day of judgment, in the day when God judges all. Can I show you a verse? I want you to look up on the screen. Here's a verse in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and it says this, For unto whomsoever is much, much is given of him shall be much required. Boy, does that not speak a lot to our nation this morning? Boy, we've had the gospel. It's preached, it's preached on a daily basis in America. We hear it and we hear it. And God said, if I've given you much, much is going to be required. And he goes on to say, if I've committed much uh, uh, of, of them, will God ask the more? Now, what's true of places is true of people. The more opportunity you've had to receive Jesus as your Savior, and the more you've rejected him, the greater the condemnation is going to be the day of judgment. What I'm trying to say is this. It'd be better for you to die and go to hell from the jungles of Africa than sitting in a church chair at Woodland Baptist Church hearing the gospel week in and week out, being moved by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God nudging your heart, tugging at you, telling you, you need Jesus, you need to be saved. And on a weekly basis, you reject that and walk out the door the same way you walked in. It'd be better for you to die and go to hell if you got to go to hell from the swinging off of jungle vines in Africa than it would be hearing the gospel week over, week in, over and over again, and rejecting that gospel. What a terrible, terrible tragedy it's going to be. Jesus said it'd be more tolerable in the day of judgment for somebody who's never heard than for somebody who hears it constantly and rejects the opportunity to receive Jesus. I want you to listen to this. I, I, I was reading this week about the Titanic. We're getting ready to celebrate. I wrote it down, but we're getting ready to celebrate uh, I, I think the 108th anniversary, April 15th, 14th, the 108th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. You know, uh, when that thing left, it left over there in uh, Yorkshire, England, setting sail for the coast of America. When they left, they had 2,240 people on board. And they sailed from April the 10th until they hit the iceberg on the, 5th, on the 14th. And I think it eventually sunk on the morning of the 15th. But when, when the thing went down, there were 1,500 people that perished in the sinking of the Titanic. 1,500 of the 2,200. So what happened? 740 people made it out of the 2,240 that set sail in the sinking of the Titanic. 
They were warned that night. They kept warning them over and over again. There is ice. There is ice in the area. And they kept sailing full steam ahead. And then, of course, you know the story. I mean, out of the haze appeared an iceberg. The guy up in the crow's nest saw it, alerted the, the, the ship. The ship did what it could to turn. And they thought, other than just a few chunks of the iceberg that broke off and fell on the, the deck of the ship, they thought they were fine. But they didn't realize they were like a bird, a spur sticking out underneath the water of that iceberg. And it just ripped a gash in five compartments down the side of the Titanic. And the compartments just began to flood. By the time Captain Smith got down there to kind of survey the damage, the front end of the ship was already laying down in the water. And when he saw it, he knew, he told the men, he said, I estimate we've got an hour and a half before we sink. They started sending out the, the uh, warnings, please, please help. You know, the SOS, the calls, the distress calls, help us, help us, send somebody, whatever. And you know the story, how that, how that they, uh, uh, those calls, even by the time those ships got there, it was too late. And 1,500 people died. Now, listen to me. Here's, here's one of the things that bothered me. They had, they had room on that ship for 32 lifeboats. They only took 20. Those 32 lifeboats were equipped to hold 65 people apiece. If they, if they took the 32, that meant that uh, uh, over 2,020 of them could have been saved, so only a few lives would have been lost. But here's the thing. When they finally decided to abandon ship, the captain said, we've got an hour and a half to get off this boat. The ship is going to sink. It actually stayed afloat for three hours before it finally sank. An hour after he decided uh, that the ship was going to sink, they finally decided, hey, lower the lifeboats. We've got to get these people off. But here's the sad thing about it. They'd hold 65 of them. Some of them only pushed away from the lifeboat, uh, from the Titanic with only 12 people in it. They, weigh, they, they put way too few people in those lifeboats. And, of course, you know the story. The crazy thing sank uh, that night, and all those people lost their lives. But here's the thing that got me about that. Those people died that night in, in, in water that's estimated to be two and a half miles deep. 1,500 people lost their, their lives that night in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, and their carcass, what's left of it, is resting on the floor two and a half miles deep under the waters of the North Atlantic. But I got to thinking, you know something? Most people who die every year in the ocean don't die in two-and-a-half-mile deep water. Did you know most people who die in the ocean every year die in water less than 10 feet deep? Just right around the shore. They get caught up in one of those riptides, whatever, and they're pulled out, and just in water, just, just 10 feet or less deep, they perish in the waters so close to the shore. Boy, I got to thinking, how many people... You're here this morning, you're lost. How close you are to the shore right here this morning. I mean, man, you're just, you're just a few feet away. I think I, I did this not too long ago, but I think if I've got this right, I don't know, but I believe the furthest corner of this building is right there. I don't know if it's a little bit out of square or what, but I think I counted. If you'll start in that corner of that building and walk down that aisle and come all the way down to the front, you're less than 135 steps from the front of this hall. Boy, that's how close you are to getting saved this morning. But how many people are going to say, no, I don't want that. I don't need that. That's not for me. 
And the Spirit of God is going to say, No, I love you. Please come to Jesus. And you're going to reject that opportunity. And if I'm reading these verses right, what Jesus is telling us is this. It would be better for a person who's never heard of Jesus to die without God than it will be for you who hear about him on a weekly basis. And if you die in the day of judgment, it's going to be worse on you than it will on them. Let me, let me wrap it all up. You say, preacher, what are you trying to say? You mean to tell us that people who have never heard of Jesus will still die and go to hell? Can I tell you something? Anybody who don't have Jesus is going to die and go to hell. But the condemnation and the judgment will not be near as severe on those people as it will be on people who sit Sunday after Sunday and hear about Jesus and say, nope, I don't want that. And they walk out the doors the same way they come in. Isn't that sad? What a tragedy. I mean, you've got the light. You've got the opportunity. Once again, just a moment, I'm going to give an invitation. I'm going to say, hey, come to Jesus. Be saved this morning. And I, tragically, some of you are probably going to sit there. Some of you are members of this church. And you know down deep in your heart, you ain't got what it takes. You know you're troubled about it. You wrestle with that over and over again. Think about the invitations you've said no. Think about how many times you've said to the Holy Spirit, leave me alone. I don't want that. And you've walked out these doors and you've thought to yourself, I beat it again. But in reality, you're fighting a battle you cannot afford to win because in Judgment Day, it's going to be worse on you than it will be on somebody who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible said here at Capernaum, you were exalted to heaven. You were lifted up. Jesus lived there. Some of his mighty works he did there. Sodom, they didn't have the opportunity you have. So Capernaum, I'm going to tell you something. Hell's going to be hot on you in judgment day. You say, preacher, I know who hell's going to be hot on. It's going to be hot on these child molesters. It's going to be hot on Adolf Hitler. It's going to be hot on Jeffrey Dahmer. It's going to be hot on these men. What's that guy out in California that killed his wife and dumped his little children in those vats of oil? I mean, man, how wicked, how, how calloused, how terrible that's going to be. The guy say, boy, I, I got it, man. It's going to be rough. But can I tell you something? The roughest person that's going to receive the most condemnation is that person who sits in church week after week after week and says no to the Holy Ghost and no to Jesus. I'm telling you, if the Bible be true, and it is, the condemnation and the judgment on that man is going to be worse than it will be on somebody who's never had that opportunity. What are you saying? I'm saying run to Jesus. I'm saying quit fighting. I'm saying wave the white flag of surrender. I'm saying this morning, quit saying no. And why don't you give one long eternal yes to the Son of God and be saved this morning. Because if you continue on the path that you're going, you talk about hell going to be hot. It is going to be terrible. You say, do you believe there's degrees of punishment in hell? If I believe these verses, I have to believe there are degrees of punishment in hell. Do you believe that people who have heard of Jesus and die and go to hell are going to suffer worse? I believe based upon these verses. I can't help but believe that. But here's the thing, and I'm done.
the question really isn't. Well, somebody who's never heard of Jesus, if they die, will they go to hell? The real question to me is, why will you die and go to hell having heard of Jesus? If, I, if your house is on fire and I run up there and I've got my water hose and I've got a ladder and I say, hey, come here, come here. Hey, I'll help you. I'll, I'll let you down on the ladder. I'll rescue you. Are you going to say, get out from here, fireman. I don't want, I'm enjoying the fire too much. It's warm in here. It's cold. Are you going to do that? No, sir. You'll come, whatever it takes. You'll do your best to get down the ladder, get to safety. And yet I'm standing up here this morning as a preacher of the Word of God saying, hey, hey, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Be saved. And you want to say, get out from here, man. I don't want that. Are you kidding me? So the question is not, will people who have never heard of Jesus go to hell? The question is, why will you, having heard of Jesus, die and go to hell? Boy, if I was you this morning, man, I'd come. I'd get it settled that I'm saved. Let's bow our heads.